Well, we are in the beginnings of the study of 1 Samuel and studying about Samuel's life. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 1, talking about his mother, Anna. And uh, I'll just say, you know, as we go along here, um, you all do a really great job of listening. So I'm not going to be doing a lot of review. I have decided that I'm going to put these online. So if you miss one, you can you can hear them online. And that, since we only have about 30 minutes on a Wednesday night, I'd really like to get right into it. But um, so my, my introductions are hopefully going to be short from the previous week. But we were introduced to uh, a lady with a problem in the time of the judges. Maybe the same time uh, that the events in Ruth are going on. We don't know for sure. But uh, this lady cannot have children. Sure, her, her husband is a godly man, Elkanah. But unfortunately, he followed the culture of his time, not necessarily the, uh, the will of, of his God, of Israel. And because his wife couldn't have a child, Hannah, he took on a second wife and had children through her. That second wife made things miserable for Hannah. And Elkanah had trouble in really being sensitive to the situation. Even the high priest, as we saw last week, Eli, had trouble understanding what was going on with her. But Hannah, if you'll remember, knew that in the end, the only one that she had full confidence in that she needed to go to right away, even more than those that were closest to her, was her God. And she went and she prayed and she poured out her heart to God. God heard her. The high priest misunderstood what was going on, confronted her. She told him what was going on. And I think even in surprise at actually someone during this time in Israel's history that was seeking God so fervently, added a blessing and said, whatever you've asked for, may it come true. Now, Eli didn't even know yet what she had asked for. And we left it as it. She went home and she was able to eat even before they left to go home because Hannah, before she even had confirmation of what God's answer was, she had confidence and rest knowing that she had left it in the Lord's hands. And that's always the best thing to do in very difficult times. In any times, but especially difficult times, is go to the Lord, leave it in his hands. And she found her, her happiness again in that. And God blesses them. A faithful woman, a general principle is when we depend upon God and God's timing, he will bless us when we trust in him. And so verse 19 of chapter 1 sees them leaving. Now, this is Shiloh, where the worship center of the country is. And they're leaving there after she's made her petitions to the Lord. And they rose up early in the morning, in the morning early, and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Now, that's um, one translated way of, it's not referring here as if the Lord had suddenly forgotten her and then um, later on remembered, oh, I promised Hannah I'd do that, and so I better help her out. Now, this, this has the idea of the Lord knew. He was tuned in to her distress 
And he knew in his exact timing when he was going to bless her. In verse 20, he did bless her. Wherefore it came to pass when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son. She called his name Samuel saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. God did hear Hannah's petitions as fervent as they were. In his time, he gives her her heart's desire. She had to go through a lot of pain, didn't she? Maybe Hannah really questioned sometime. Maybe she did. We would all be tempted to what God was doing. But ultimately, her faith was in God. She put it in his hands. And many times, something that we truly desire, that we want of the Lord, many times God doesn't just say, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, if, against, if it's against his moral will, he will say that. But many times what he says is, just wait. Wait for that. In my timing, I will give it to you, and you will have much more appreciation for it. And the whole nation of Israel is going to have appreciation for Hannah's son, as God is going to use Samuel to bring the nation back to the Lord. Now, Sam, the name Samuel can mean one of two things, either heard of God or he who is from God. And either one, Hannah points back to the fact that God heard her prayers and that he gave her this gift. That's why I've titled this part of the, the study, Samuel, a gift from the Lord. So God hears her and blesses her in this way. Then verse 21, as Hannah's pregnant, she's not had the baby yet, or, or, or she's had the baby, excuse me, but he's still very young. She's still nursing. Verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay or take care of his vow. That was a thing that was expected of all the male members of the household and, and the father that had to um, take care of these vows before God. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before or in the presence of the Lord. And she knows at that time there abide or dwell forever. Hannah is taking care of the child at his earliest days, and she's cherishing all these things because she knows that once she does go to offer him up to the Lord, it's permanent. It's been her decision. She will literally leave him there at the temple in Shiloh. And so she's cherishing these moments. And it also shows us this family, even with their difficulties and Elkanah's flaws, he is a faithful man. He's faithful to God. And we can tell here when we get to the next few verses, I think he's even learned a little bit more sensitivity toward his wife, a little bit more carefulness in his speech toward her. All of this is in contrast. Remember, this small town family, they seem to be, they have some wealth. They're faithful to God. All this is going to continue to be in contrast toward, unfortunately, the priest and his sons, his sons, which were thoroughly wicked and thoroughly depraved. And we're going to constantly see the contrast between these two families. And Elkanah. Her husband said unto her, this is where I said, I think he's learned a little bit in his husband communication. Last time he didn't do so well, but now he says, do what seemeth the good best or best. Tarry or wait until thou have weaned him. Only the, only the Lord establish his word. Hannah, you do what you think is best and the Lord will, will take care of it. The Lord is in all of this. Good job. And so the woman abode 
and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks, or another translation could be a three-year-old bull. Whichever one those are, this does give some indication that Elkanah and his family had some wealth. Not every family could offer up three bullocks or even one. Sometimes it had to be just pigeons if you were a poor family. This just gives us an idea that the Lord had blessed this family. And now they're going to give back some of what God has blessed them with. And one ephah of flour and a bottle or skin of wine. Here's something interesting I'll just point out real quick. It's a translation issue. Um, they didn't have bottles back then. They would have carried wine, just like in, in all of New Testament times, even the New Testament would have been in a wine skin. Now, we've talked about wine skins before when we were going through um, Jesus' first miracle in John, so I'm not going to give all that background. But it is interesting to me here in this translation issue that the King James translators, even though the Greek word means wine skin or skin, they decided let's come up with a more modern translation bottle that will make better sense to our audience that's um, hearing this in the time the King James Version um, was being translated. And so that's just an interesting thing to throw out here in a translation issue that it was thought, well, in our culture, the drink comes in bottles at this point. So we'll just make a note here and change it. It's not any problem, just interesting on a translation issue there. And I just wanted to make note of that. And brought him into the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Here we have a very young, probably we're talking a toddler here, not very old at all. And they slew a bullock, a bull, and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. And maybe Eli is, he's thinking, uh, he's thinking through, now he's an, an older man, so it might have taken him a few minutes. He's like, okay, well, that happens a lot. Uh but I think I remember you, yeah. And then he may have thought, oh, that's the woman that I misunderstood and thought she was drunk. Well, <laughs> that was, wasn't my best moment. Anyway, she says, now she tells him at this time what she was praying for. She hasn't done this yet. For this child I prayed, and the Lord had given me my petition, which I ask of him. Now here's a surprise for Eli. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. Hannah is faithful to her vow, and, and she does not have any other children yet. This is her only child, and yet because of God's faithfulness to her, she's being faithful to God, and she's saying to Eli, this is what I was praying for. And, and remember, Eli, without knowing what she was praying for, said, may the Lord give you what you've prayed for. And so now Eli is going to be the recipient of a blessing as well. And um, Samuel is going to serve there. A hard thing for a mother to do, but she is so thankful for what God has done. She's willing to do that. And it says, and he worshiped the Lord there, but it doesn't tell us who he is. So we're left to kind of wonder. Uh, because of Samuel's age, I'm, I think it's probably Eli. Eli looking back. Now, Eli had his own great difficulties. And Eli is actually going to be facing punishment in the future. But there were, he, he did have 
some good aspects to his character. And I think he looks back on all this and he just marvels. Here's this woman that he misunderstood and she explained who she was and that she was praying. And then he says, may the Lord give you what you asked for. And now God is giving him help through all this. And I think he's just overwhelmed and he just worships the Lord and praises the Lord there for what God has done. There's a recognition here that God's plan is always best and it is always wonderful uh, when he reveals it. So in the same time, Hannah has her own little worship session here. And it says, and Hannah prayed, but this is also, this is a prayer, but this is also really a song of praise. Now we don't have time to go through every aspect of this song of praise. Maybe you could go uh, again later and look through this. But I thought since this was Hannah singing or, or praying this to the Lord there at the temple, that we ought to have some ladies read this for us. That would be good. So, uh, Lori, would you mind starting us out with verses two, two through three? And you don't have to say, and Hannah prayed and said, okay, you can just start with my heart. And then after that, Pam, would you do verses four through eight? And then let's see, um, Carol, would you do the final verses nine through nine and 10? And I have a couple comments to make after each one of those passages. So Lori, would you get us a start on this? It'd be great. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derives my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Okay, so this first part of her song here, Hannah is praising God for the work that he has done in her own life. She starts out this with just thanksgiving and gratitude for God. Is she bitter about having to leave her son? No, here is the sweetness of her spirit in her service toward the Lord. She's so thankful that God just gave her a son and that now she'll have a son that will serve him faithfully for the rest of her life. She just overflows in joy for what God is doing for her. What a wonderful perspective in all this. Now the second part, Pam. The vows of mighty are broken, but the people bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out, out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The, Lord's, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shell and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Okay, this, now Hannah expands her um, view from just herself to God's help and his deliverance for all needy people, and probably her own people as well. She's pointing out um, that, that God, for the faithful, God in a general sense, helps out all of those that are faithful to him, and she's rejoicing in that as well. And now the last two verses, Carol. He will guard the feet 
of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them will he thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Okay, so here, Hannah expands it even further and is praising God for his future work in her nation's exaltation or uh, being uplifted at the end and being strengthened. She is expecting salvation for her nation. But it's very interesting, this early on in Israel's history, what Hannah is expecting here. Did you notice that at the end? The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. She's talking about the... Um, Later on, the future of Israel, he shall give strength unto his, his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She obviously expects God is eventually going to give Israel a king. And how appropriate to begin this book with that future purview and look ahead. God would give Israel a king, a man after his own heart. And here Hannah seems to some way or another, if the Holy Spirit just gave her that knowledge or, or whatever, maybe it was an expectation that the Israelite people had this time. At some point, God would give them a king. But here's even more important. Beyond King David, I think this points to, at the end there, it says the horn of his anointed. And this is very interesting. This is actually the first time in all of scripture that the Messiah is referred to, the anointed one. And the Messiah. And isn't it interesting that Hannah, this, this poor woman who had this great difficulty, was a faithful servant of God, and God helps her, and God gives her this revelation that he is going to send a great king, a deliverer, a Messiah, and she's praising him for that as well. And that Messiah from this point on is going to be a continually more important theme to the people of Israel until he comes, their future king, Jesus. And so we have here at the end of her song a reference to eventually Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, praising her God for that too. So in the midst of when we're being grateful for the things that God has done for us and blessed us with, don't forget to praise him for many of the things that he's doing. And most importantly, praise him for Jesus, just like Hannah did, even without all of that understanding, maybe she's praising um, the coming of Jesus Christ. Wonderful praise prayer there. You could take more time to work through it on your own. And verse 11, and Elkanah went to Ramah back to his house. And the child now in Shiloh at the temple did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. Now note that we're going to see this again, this theme. The child, even as young as he is, I don't, it could be three, four years old, is immediately ministering with Eli's help. To the Lord. And that's remarkable. Got a good start. So we see a faith, a, a, a faith that God blesses and that God honors, but we're going to see a faith that continues to be committed, a committed family. And in the midst of great wickedness, this family and this little boy in particular are going to continue in faithful service. It's possible. Faithful service is possible in the midst of great wickedness. And that's encouraging for us today, too. First of all, we're going to go back now to we, we focused on this small town faithful family. 
And now we're going to go to a faithless family who are actually Israel's spiritual leaders. And that's shocking here. But grown leaders that are faithless. And this really kind of goes back to that theme of judges. Remember that? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And maybe Hannah thought, when God brings that king, my countrymen will stop acting the way that they're acting. Because right now, it's not good. Even thinking, and now we have testimony here of Eli and his sons that is very negative in contrast. So verse 12 of chapter 2. Now the sons of Eli were the sons of Belial. We've seen that once before. That term means worthless men. They knew not the Lord. Now we have studies in contrast between a little boy who just has been described, little toddler, as faithfully serving God, and grown men who are supposed to be serving God and refuse to obey him. Shocking. Eli's sons are described in the most negative terms here. This term, sons of Belial, a son of Belial, um, we don't really know for sure what that name Belial refers to, but it's used a lot in First and Second Samuel, and it suggests one who failed to give due respect to God or others, and thus represented a threat to proper religious and societal order. Here is God's servants posing a very threat to their own society because they're so disobedient. How is that the case? We get some specifics here. And the priest's custom with the people, now it doesn't say that this was a good custom. It just says this is a custom that has become a part of the current worship agenda at this time. The priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came, probably referring here to Eli's sons, their names are Hophni and Phinehas, and they would send a servant to check on the sacrifice rather than coming themselves. And while the meat was in seething or the meat was boiling with a flesh hook of three teeth, that sounds really dramatic, doesn't it? Think a barbecue prong. Okay, you know, one of those long forks for barbecue, and you've got just about the right idea here. In his hand, and he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All these things were used. And all that the fork brought up, the priest took for himself. So did they in Shiloh undo all the Israelites that came thither. Um, These are worthless men that are being described here in the most important aspect of this description in verse 12, I didn't mention earlier, is they knew not God. They weren't even followers of God. They weren't even believers. Remarkable. And what would happen would be, and and that the people uh, would come for their peace sacrifices, their peace offerings, and there was supposed to be a certain amount of meat that was set aside for the priests involved in all this. Well, unfortunately, and again, we can tell it's quite obvious that this is happening during the time of the judges, because this isn't something that God prescribed back in his law. But it had gotten to the point where the priest would send some servants, and before anything else would happen, they would take this meat fork, and they would stick it in, and they would grab the best of the meat and say, thanks, see ya. They would take the best of the meat for themselves and, and sometimes they would come back maybe even once or twice, make sure that they had the best portions. And then, okay, now you guys will do the rest of the offering, the sacrifice with what we have left here. 
and showing disdain for God's way in the sacrifices and the sacrificial system that God expected. We'll take the best for ourselves and leave the rest for you guys, because part of this meat also in a peace sacrifice would have been that the family enjoyed and part of it was given to God. So just total disregard then, total selfishness here. Um, and in, Levi, in, in Leviticus, excuse me, or Deuteronomy 18, it does give us the right way that this was supposed to be handled. I'll just read this. And this shall be the priest due from the people, from them that offer a sacrifice, whether it be ox or sheep, and they shall give unto the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the maw, the first fruit also of thy corn and of thy wine and of thy oil, and the first of the fleece of thy sheep shall thou give him. For the Lord thy God hath chosen him out of all thy tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. So it wasn't expected that the Levites would be taken care of, but not that they would rudely come in and just take whatever they wanted. But it gets worse, verse 15. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, give meat to roast for the priest, for he will not accept boiled meat, or it says, have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. Basically, that means he doesn't want the meat after the fat has been boiled off. Now, stick with me here. I know there's a lot of details. But if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently first, and then take as much as thy soul desired. Then he would answer him, nay, but thou shalt give it me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred or treated with contempt the offering of the Lord. Here's what's going on. It was expected by God that the fatty part of the meat and the offering would be offered to God, the best part of the meat, right? But Hophni and Phinehas would send their servants to take these best portions for themselves and it was so bad that even the people, the, the people of the community, the normal people of, of Israel, they would bring their sacrifices and, and they would admonish the priests and say, wait a minute, God says we're supposed to give him of the best of the meat. So, so let us just take the best of the meat, offer this to the Lord. Uh, you're the priest. You should understand why we want to do this, right? And if they argued with him, then they would get belligerent and they would say, we don't care about that. We want the best meat, and if you don't give it to us, we'll take it by force. Amazing here, the contempt for God and worship for him. Utter contempt and selfishness. Now, what would be an application here? Well, a, a specific application really doesn't work because we're not held <laughs> under the sacrificial system like the people in the Old Testament, like the Jew, like the, like Israel was. So I won't ever come on a Sunday night um, after you've had a wonderful dinner with steak or whatever, and I won't get up here in front of the pulpit and say, folks, it has come to my attention that some of you have been eating the fatty portions of your meat in your dinners. And, you know, we've talked about that. And that is, it is against the worship of God. You've defiled God's name and you are in big trouble now. That wouldn't be the application that I would use here, right? But I think there is a more broader general application in this about holding in contempt the principles of worship that God expects us to hold to. 
God expects us in a general sense now to when we worship him, to give him the best of what we have, to do the best that we can to um, even with our music and even the way that, that we dress, all of these things. And I'll get a little more specific here. I consider the worship service for our church, the morning service in particular. That's the time where we worship God. We come together and God still these principles from the Old Testament basically point to the fact that God deserves the best that we have and the best that we can offer him. We don't have to worry about sacrifices and all these things now and all the blood and the, and the bloodiness of all this. But we do have to give him our best. If it's dressing, it, it, it's what we wear. It's just it's the best that we have. In, in our music, we really make an effort on Sunday mornings in particular to make sure it's the very best for this same principle. Because we don't want to come. God takes worship so seriously. And we're going to find out here, these young men, are these priests are in real trouble. And they're facing grave judgment. And it's not just because they took a certain portion of meat that was the best meat. But it's because they despise worshiping God. And that general principle is something that's so important. We shouldn't. We have to make sure that we don't despise our worship of the one true God even today that we take it seriously. And so we're careful about that. In other words, we're more concerned about how God, what God thinks of our worship than whether we like it or not, or whether it's what we think is best. When it comes to that worship service and worshiping God, it ought to be what we are convinced he thinks is best. Some great worship principles here in the midst of all this. And these young men care nothing for God and for his worship. Remarkable, again, these are the priests, the leaders of the nation, and it's abhorrent because of this. Now we have a contrast. In the midst of all that, now God, uh, the author here, goes back to little Samuel. What's going on with him? Verse 18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord. Now Eli's been taken out of it. Now it's just described as, as he's gotten a little bit older, he is ministering, and his, his ministry is directly to the Lord as he's growing He's faithful, and he's giving faithful service, but he's still a child, girded or clothed with a linen ephod. He had a little, um, he had a little outfit that was a priestly robe and garment like the other priests would wear that would fit him. And on top of that, of that priestly garment that he had, his mother would come every year, verse 19, his mother made him a little coat or robe and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Here we again, in the midst of all this evil going on, we have this faithful family that continue to be faithful to God. And she provides him this coat that will help keep him warm. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, the Lord give thee seed or children of this woman for the loan which is lent or the petition, probably translated here, the petition she asked of, of the Lord. And they went into their home. This faithful family comes up. Eli sees them. Hannah's talking with Samuel. And then Eli pronounces a blessing on them and says, Lord, for their faithfulness, let this couple have more children. And so they go home, verse 21. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters. And the young man, the child, the young man, Samuel, grew before or in the presence of the Lord. God didn't leave 
Hannah childless in a physical sense. He provided for her. He gave her more children. When we wait on God's timing, he, he loves to surprise us with blessings. But we have to wait for him, right? And here we have a faithful family that God's blessing. And this little child now in the midst of this great evil, he is growing and he's serving in the presence of the Lord. Don't miss that contrast here. It's remarkable. This answers another question, though, that um, gets asked a lot in our culture today. You know, Hannah was rewarded further for her faithfulness um, in this, certainly. But what about Samuel? Did he have a chance, really, to serve God in such an evil culture? I've been asked this before. You've probably heard this before. How can it must be very difficult for you to raise children in such an evil age? There's, and, and, and it is evil out there, folks. It's dark. We understand that. And when I've heard that before, it's been kind of hard to, to know what to say right away because it's true. It's an evil age. But that's not um, unknown to God's people. Obviously, this time in, in Israel's history was a very wicked, evil time, as we're describing for you. And here's one little boy. How's he going to make it? Doesn't even have his mom and dad, right? Well, God answers here. The answer is yes. That young people, children can still serve God faithfully in the midst of very evil culture and circumstances. And that encourages me. That ought to encourage all of us. If it can happen for Samuel. It can happen for any of our kids that they can remain faithful to God. All right. Well, something has to be done about this wickedness. And Eli finally, after all this time, is going to move ahead, and he's going to deal with his son, something that he should have done a long time ago. Verse 22, now Eli was very old. Interestingly, he waits till almost the end of his life to fully address his son's wicked behavior. And this has gotten so bad, look at this, and heard all that his sons did unto Israel. If you thought the things about the sacrifice and the meat was bad, and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door or the tent of the congregation of the meeting. These are women described here that served in the temple. And these, his sons did um, immoral things here, just pure evil, pure wicked. And Eli is exasperated, and he said unto them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Everyone knows your testimony of evil, and you're God's servants. You're supposed to be God's priests. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress, or it has the idea of the people of the Lord are spreading abroad your transgressions. If one man sin against another, the, the judge shall judge him, or God will mediate for him. And he's saying here, um, in our law, God has ways if one person sins against a brother, or one man or one woman sins against um, another man or woman, there are ways within God's law to deal with both sides that include gracious measures. Think of one thing in particular. Remember, um, the, the cities of, the, the, word, the word just, refuge. refuge, thank you. The cities of refuge, that even one that had murdered someone else could escape to, and God had, was gracious in the fact that they could live in that city and, and keep their lives. 
there were, if you sinned against another person, if you repented before God, there were ways that he could be gracious. But he's saying, your sin is directly before God. You are directly disobeying God himself as his, as his servants. In the end there, he says, but if a man sin against the Lord, who shall intercede for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father. They are facing now the direct punishment from God himself um, because their sin is so great. And these are very sobering words indeed. They hearken not unto the voice of their father because the Lord would slay them. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. God, they have gotten to the point where they've rebelled so much against God that God has pronounced his verdict on them. They are going to lose their lives. Eli didn't even understand this yet, but he knew that they were in serious trouble with Yahweh, with the God of Israel, and he pleads for them. But isn't it interesting? Eli never actually removes them from service. He never goes, takes it to the full step. Yeah, it's one thing to confront them, but if he was really concerned about it, he would have said, guys, I can do no further. You, you're not priests anymore. I remove you from service because of your sin. And he never does that. And so God's wrath is going to be on Eli as well. And God has now declared in his will that they're going to die. Now, that would be a very negative way to end all of this. But again, the contrast here, the gift of Samuel to the nation of Israel Samuel, in the midst of all this wickedness, is going to continue to grow in the knowledge and favor of the Lord. Verse 26, and the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. Or, you know, another way to be translate this, he continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Hmm. Have you ever heard that description before? It's reminiscent of the Messiah that would one day come. And the description of him as he grew up would be the same thing. There's a connection here. In the midst of great wickedness, here is this little boy who's growing and doing right. And in the next time when we, we get together here, we'll see how God uses him and has a specific message for him. And there would come one. He is a picture, not a perfect picture, but he's a picture of one that would come in the New Testament that would even more so fully be obedient and grow in favor with God and man and be the ultimate gift to the world that we desperately need. In the midst of great wickedness, God has his servants that will help his people. And ultimately, folks, when we're faced with great wickedness and disappointment all around us, all of this, as much as it talks about Samuel's faithfulness, you can see it points to Jesus. And we should never lose our faith and trust in Jesus in the midst of great evil times like today. Trust that Jesus um, is going to help us as his people.